0: These two worlds, though they are, you know, but miles apart, are so different. Um, If you are, you know, looking around the food court at Scarborough Town Center, it looks nothing like Osgoode Hall. And if you are from that community and you end up at Osgoode Hall and you look around and you say, am I going to get justice today? Like, I've been told that this is the finest justice system the world has ever known. But am I really going to get justice when everybody in this room looks nothing like me, nothing like my community, nothing like my family?
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall. I'm the Project Coordinator for the National Self-Represented Litigants Project, which is based at the University of Windsor Law School. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And today's episode, we are calling Changing Faces in the Justice System. And I have to say, this is a really great conversation with uh, Ranjan Agarwal. That's right. Ranjan
2: Agarwal is a partner at Bennett Jones in Toronto, where his practice focuses on class actions, commercial litigation and public law. He's widely regarded as a rising star of the commercial bar, and he draws, I think, particular envy for the number of appearances he's already made at the Supreme Court of Canada, which um, are described as probably more than any other lawyer of his age. But in terms of our relationship with Ranjan, he pretty much fell into our lap when the NSRLP put out a call for pro bono help with an intervener application in the Pintia versus John's case, which was the case involving a self represented litigant that was heard by the Supreme Court of Canada earlier this year. And then when we discovered that the lawyer, that is Ranjan, who had so enthusiastically and quickly answered our call for pro bono help, was this star Supreme Court of Canada advocate, well, we did a little dance around the office. So when we met and worked with Ranjan, we discovered a couple of other really key things about his legal career. One is that he does a great deal of pro bono work, and he's received numerous recognitions and awards for this. And then this summer, Ranjan ran for and was elected secretary of the Ontario Bar Association. So there were a lot of questions I wanted to ask Ranjan about his work and his motivations and his goals for the work that he's doing. I reached him in his office on a warm August day.
0: Hello, Ranjan. How are you?
3: Hello. Good, thank you. Thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. You and I, Ranjan, we met over email, which I suppose isn't terribly unusual these days. Uh, But I have a very distinct memory of that first day because I had sent you an inquiry about whether you might consider acting as our pro bono counsel for the National Self-Represented Litigants Project intervenor application in the Pintia case, which was a case involving a self-represented litigant that was going to be heard by the Supreme Court of Canada. And I looked back through my email before we talked today, and I, I this is what I remembered as well. I think it took you something like an hour and forty minutes to reply to someone you never heard from before, and say yes, basically, <laughs> which I remember I was so excited by. So tell me a little bit, first of all, about why you were eager to do the Pintia case in particular, and also because now, obviously, I, I know just how much pro bono work you do. What motivates you to do pro
0: bono work? Well, uh, I um, because I'm a Supreme Court watcher, and I... And I like appellate work, and I'm interested in issues of public importance. Uh, mm. you know, I make it part of my practice to follow cases that are on appeal at the Supreme Court of Canada. And part of the reason why I do that is that in a lot of public interest cases, the court is willing to accept submissions from interveners, and it's a good opportunity for me to provide pro bono services to the community but also to uh, participate in an appeal at the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah. Uh, the Patea case um, was actually a case that we had been watching here at the firm. You know, the, the, the self-represented pro bono space, you know, cases involving issues around pro bono litigation or pro bono representation, self-represented litigation probably doesn't have um, the same number of interested parties that, for example, a freedom of religion issue does or a Correct. Issue. So, we we were, you know, in some ways a little flummoxed. We didn't really know who else we could offer our services to. So, when your email appeared in my inbox, it was sort of (laughs) fortuitous that we had already um, sort of internally decided that we wanted to participate in the appeal. We were helpful to find a client. We had let people know that we were interested. And then, all of a sudden, uh, you came out of the blue. So, it was pretty easy for us to say yes. We didn't have to do a lot of work internally to kind of get over that hurdle. Right. um, You know, I was really pleased because, you know, I like the idea of helping groups that haven't intervened before become part of the dialogue that happens at the Supreme Court of Canada. And um, this was a great opportunity to expand uh, the parties that were intervening in cases like this. You know, and my hope was and is that the National self represented Litigants Project becomes part of that ongoing dialogue the next time a case involving you know, self-represented litigants goes
3: up to the court. Yeah, and, so, and certainly so do we. But but can I just take you back a step? I mean, you you talked about how, um, and I think you're correct. There are relatively fewer um, pro bono counsel following cases involving self-represented litigants than, than in some other areas that are maybe more established. So, why were you interested?
0: Well, I am, and as you intimated, um, I have made it part of my practice to do a lot of pro bono litigation. And so I'm involved in acting for people who cannot afford a lawyer, um, both groups and individuals. And as a result of having done that work, I've had the opportunity to interact with people uh, who are doing work in this space, uh, like, for example, Matt Cohen at PBO, Pro Bono Ontario, and the result is that I've just become really interested in the challenges that are being faced by self-represented litigants and how the bar can respond to those challenges. And so, you know, I have a real interest in human rights and equality rights and constitutional law. And, you know, the other area that I really have an interest in, interested in is, you know, civil legal reform when it comes to self-represented litigants. And, and those cases are rare at the Supreme Court of Canada. Yes. So when one shows up, you immediately want to be part of the discussion that's going to hopefully move the ball towards reforming the system.
3: Well, that's great. And I don't know whether you noticed, but there was an Ontario Court of Appeal decision that just came down that may well be finding itself to the Supreme Court of Canada that's pretty important for self-represented litigants, a vexatious litigants case that has just a decision that's just come down that I think you might find you should put on your Supreme
0: Court of Canada watch list. So... (laughs)
3: Well, I will.
0: I will. And you you may get a call for me before you know it.
3: (laughs) It's uh, Khan versus Krylov. Very, very interesting. But just taking you back to your work in the Supreme Court of Canada, I mean, one of the things that I did after we had our first conversation um, was, of course, do a little more Googling about you. (laughs) And one of the things that I discovered was that you have racked up a phenomenal number of appearances for some of your stage in your career in the Supreme Court of Canada. And, you know, I wanted to ask you a bit about that because I know some of the people who will be listening to this will include law students and also maybe people earlier in their careers who may be dreaming of, of appellate advocacy in the Supreme Court. So all those times you've been there, I think it's 40 plus, I imagine every time is exciting and also a little nerve-wracking. And I'm wondering, you know, what was the first time like? And is it really different to be in the Supreme Court of Canada than in another court? Uh,
0: You know, I I remember it's one of those memories I'll probably carry for the rest of my life. So the first thing I always tell people, because I get this question a lot from students and junior lawyers, I, I I tell them that being in the Supreme Court of Canada is like when you were in elementary school and you got to take a field trip. You know, you're sitting at the science center or <laughs> on a picnic bench somewhere and you're thinking to yourself, I am at school, but I'm having the time of my life not <laughs> at school. And that's what being in the Supreme Court of Canada is like. It's, you, it's work. Um, it's nerve wracking. Um, you know, the butterflies have never left me. but Really? Um, you,
3: still, you still get nervous each yes, time?
0: Yes, of course. Cause, mm. and, and you were there with us in the potato field, but you know that... Yeah you know, the dais there with those nine sets of eyes peering at you um, can be quite it's intimidating. It's pretty
3: intimidating, yes, yeah. <laughs> I would but, you, So would
0: imagine. The beauty of being an intervener is that, you know, you don't get to make your submission for some time, so you get to hear the bench warm up, you get to hear the lawyers warm up, mm-hmm. and you inevitably take a pause and look around this, you know, grandiose room, yes. and you realize the history of the room and the history of the people that argued in that room, and it's really mm-hmm. breathtaking, and it's it's exciting to be there, and it's exciting to be part of you know a day that will be historical uh, for many, many cases and for many, many people. You know, the first case I did was a case called Mavi, uh, and I remember it for two reasons. One, again, it was my first time in Supreme Court of Canada. I had no probably idea, or maybe even business, being there. I was a 50 year <laughs> lawyer. Um, yeah, I looked at sort of videotapes of other people online, but you know, I um, I prepared my presentation in a way that I thought would be impactful, but I'll tell you the other reason I remember it is that my mother uh, was quite desperate to watch the video online. Yes. And couldn't figure out how to get the audio or video to work. I didn't learn this till after. And the reason I learned that is because the registrar came up to me after I was done the appeal and said, kind of in a low voice, by the way, uh, your mother called the court looking (laughs) for assistance. On how to access the video. So look, I mean, I oh, tell that story. I, I tell that story because they were they were quite um, quite funny about it, but also because look, I mean, for my my family, it was a momentous day, and you know that appeal, you know, the submission I made in that appeal was about immigrants to Canada who have been sponsored by family members, and it was very personal because my family came to Canada as sponsored immigrants, and I I remember saying to the panel uh, in my submission that. You know, it would have been unheard of for a person like me to stand up in this courtroom and yes. make this submission twenty years ago. And so, you know, I rem- I'll remember that one forever.
3: Well, that's really
0: inspiring. I think that's
3: I think that's an account that's going to inspire a lot of others. I certainly hope so. And and it and it brings me to the next question that I really wanted to ask you, which is um now with your hat on, not so much as Supreme Court of Canada veteran, but the incoming secretary. Of the Ontario Bar Association. Congratulations.
0: Thank
3: you. And in your manifesto, I was very struck by something that you wrote, Ranjan. You said, I decided to run for this position because I want to be a voice for a new generation of lawyers. As president of the South Asian Bar Association of Toronto, I've had the privilege of advocating for more diversity in our profession and on the bench. So, can you? begin maybe by saying a little bit about what it means to you to represent what you call the new generation and what might that look like during your term with an organization that I think we can you know frankly acknowledge historically has been pretty homogenous and white and conservative.
0: You know I um I- I'm always struck by this comparison. You know, I, I spend a lot of time at Osgood Hall, at the courthouse, and if you walk the halls of Osgood Hall, the walls are lined with portraits of former chief justices and former treasurers of the law society. And without exception, they are old white men, uh, great lawyers in their time, great judges yep. in their time, yep. um, but old white men.
3: They all look the same.
0: Yes. Right. And, and then I, you know, every Sunday, we go to my in-laws house for dinner. They live next to the Scarborough Town Center. And my my wife grew up in Scarborough, and we inevitably, her and I, will sneak off to spend, you know, an hour or so on our own with our kids. Yes. Uh, you know, the, a modern version of a date, if you will. And, you know, I, I walk through the food court there or, you know, the Walmart, and you think to yourself, these two worlds, though they are, you know, but miles apart, are so different. Um, if you are, you know, looking around the food court at Scarborough Town Center it looks nothing like Osgood Hall, and yes. if you are from that community, and you end up at Osgood Hall, and you look around, and you say, am I going to get justice today? Like, I've been told that this is the finest justice system the world has ever known, but am I really going to get justice when everybody in this room looks nothing like me, nothing like my community, nothing like my family? Yeah. And that it's that comparison that has always struck me, and the other thing that has struck me is that when I talk to people who are in their 30s, you know, I'm I'm turning 40 this year, but when I talk to people sort of my age or younger, the diversity of Toronto is not at all foreign to them. They grew mm-hmm. up in schools and communities that look like the Toronto we know it is. They um, look by like the Scarborough Center. Right. But, you know, and it was not unusual. Um, I grew up in Edmonton, but, you know, my wife and I, in two different cities, we had friends from, Not only the South Asian community, but, you know, my wife's best friend who's just been staying with us this past week is Somali-Canadian. We have friends from Egypt, from Europe, you know, from all around the world. And it's not strange to us. And then you think to yourself, you enter the profession and the profession looks nothing like that world. And I think a new generation of lawyers that is lawyers sort of 40 and under are really itching to make the profession look like the world in which it operates in. And I think they're really chomping at the bit to find a way to do that. And I hope that as an officer of the OBA, I can give voice to that, in part because the OBA, there's no secret to this, the OBA and the CBA have experienced declining membership year over year over year, because I think young lawyers, I think lawyers of all stripes, but young lawyers in part don't see the value of being part of an organization. They don't see them
3: as relevant. Yeah, Right.
0: They see it as part of the establishment Mm -hmm. and as part of the profession that actually doesn't represent them, their friends, and their community.
3: So is there a balance for you? And I think, you know, I'm not quite sure how to ask this question, so I'm just going to give it a go. Is there a balance for you where, as an officer of the OBA, you are obviously there, for the whole profession and for what you call the new generation, which is every single color and stripe of lawyer. But you are also there to represent an historically underrepresented, indeed discriminated against group in your own community. Can you talk about that balance a little bit?
0: Yeah, I I, I actually think it, it's not going to be very hard to reconcile. I don't know yet, and there may be conflicts yeah. that arise but I think I see my job as helping the governance of the OBA, and I think there are great people there who are really interested in making the OBA more relevant, be the everyday problems that come across their desk through the lens of uh, visible minorities and racialized persons. I'll give you an example, and I wasn't at the table when this debate was had, so I don't know quite how it played out, but You'll remember there was a controversy after the U.S. election of a judge in Hamilton yeah. that had worn a Make America Great hat into court. At my association, this was a no-brainer, and at a vast majority of associations, this was a no-brainer. There was a clear and prevailing understanding amongst minority lawyers, especially South Asians and Muslim lawyers, that this was going to draw the administration of justice into disrepute. Yeah, that it was offensive to people. Right. Yeah. Right. But I, my understanding is that at the OBA, because there's a lot of voices at the table, there was a harder discussion about that. That it it was not so clear cut for everybody at the table, and there were for sure advocates who espoused the same view. I think as Sava, Toronto, and as other uh, minority bar associations, that this was offensive. But but my understanding is that there were people who didn't see it as a problem, and I think at the end of the day, the role of why I want to play a role in an organization beyond, for example, the South Asian Bar Association for the broader profession like the OBA is to start helping the OBA and its lawyers and its leadership and, frankly, the profession at large, see those everyday problems through the lens of what it's like to be a minority lawyer. Um, you know, at the end of the day, if, if you don't know a Muslim, if you've never worked with a Muslim, if you haven't broken bread with a Muslim... It might not be obvious to you, and I don't take I don't say that as a criticism. Like that's just life.
3: It right. may not, not be obvious within
0: people's experience. Yeah, right. It, it just may not be obvious to you why a hat like that would be offensive. But you know, to me, having grown up with Muslims, being a South Asian, lived through 9/11, it's readily apparent why it's a problem. And and I think that extends beyond just that example. You know, it extends to policing. It extends to the treatment of racialized lawyers in the profession generally. It extends to the treatment of women in large workplaces. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's all about adding that lens. And I guess at the end of the day, you know, I'm a big believer that you have to, you know, be the change that you want in the world. I don't think it's enough to sit back and say, oh, I wish things were better. Somebody else should do that. I I think if you want it to be better, you've got to stand up. Again, I think that, That is a statement
3: that many people listening to this are going to find very inspiring. So just sort of moving to that whole profession piece um, for a final question, Ranjan, as you know, I've been working for years now, um, researching and writing and to some extent lobbying for ways in which the legal profession could start to provide services to what I would call ordinary folks, um, who can't afford, for, you know, the services of a lawyer for a protracted period of time, and and I, one of the other things I noticed in your manifesto for the OBA uh, was that you said that you saw the bar as being at a crossroads, which you know is a is a word that we use a lot to signify changes ahead. <laughs> which direction will we take? So, could you say a little bit about the changes? That you personally would like to imagine will happen in the way that the legal profession provides services beyond corporate and institutional clients, but to ordinary Canadians who perhaps don't have unlimited resources?
0: Well, let me uh, answer that question by first sort of just talking about what I think are some of the crossroads. Because I, I will confess to you, I, I don't, you know, have all of my ideas of what the future should look like totally um, firmed up. Oh, that's okay. We can
3: come back and do this again in a year.
0: (laughs) But but I do know, I I do have a very firm sense of what I think are the seeds of the problem. And I think it goes to a lot of the work that you've been doing, which is that, and I see this working in a big law firm, you know, 40 and even 30 years ago, big law firms. and, and First of all, they weren't very big, but law firms of all sizes, were the firm of Main Street. Uh, I mean, if you had a business problem, you'd go to a big law firm. But equally, big law firms service people who have family law disputes. They service people uh, on both sides of employment disputes. It wasn't unusual for uh, lawyers like J.J. Robinette at McCarthy's to do criminal defense work. And what has happened in the profession is that the firms have stratified. And what it means is that the best and brightest students because in fact, we tell them as a community that if you got good grades, you should go to Bay Street, end up at the very large firms who are servicing the biggest clients who can afford their rates. And the result is that we have now become the firm of Wall Street or Bay Street, as opposed to the firms, I should say, as opposed to the firms of Main Street. And we aren't servicing everyday ordinary people. And as a result, it is becoming harder and harder for lawyers, I think, to understand the problems of everyday people. Mm -hmm. But, and I think this is a problem for the profession, everyday people, if I can use that term, are beginning to understand that what lawyers do isn't that special. It used to be that lawyers had the keys to the kingdom, if you will, but all of a sudden, if you have in your community or your circle of friends, someone who's gone through a legal dispute and ended up representing themselves because they couldn't afford a lawyer, all of a sudden you begin to think, well, that wasn't such a big deal. Sam or Jim handled that matter. They 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 handled their family law dispute or they went and did their um you know uh, their small claims court action. And even though I'd like a lawyer, you know, it it didn't seem that hard. There's all this information on the internet, there's a lot of technology available to me. And I think we as a profession and we lawyers start to lose legitimacy for why we are a profession, if you will that um, requires, you know, three years of postgraduate study and a year of training at the bar. And why That's $500 an hour. Right. And why ultimately we deserve to be paid as much as we do. So, yeah. you know, I think we have to do more to connect again with the everyday legal problems that are faced by people in court. And the other thing that I have noticed, um, and this doves us a little bit with the question around um, generational change, is that After the recession, you know, the economics of the law changed after 2008. And I think for a while, lawyers thought, you know, we could take the leverage back that companies had gotten, but um, ultimately, you know, it hasn't changed. And what it means, I think, is that for a new generation of lawyers, like people in their late 20s and 30s, who maybe weren't able to make it on Bay Street or didn't want to make it on Bay Street technology and the realities of this access to justice problem, combined with the fact that law firms, you know, aren't the sort of keys to the riches that they were maybe 20 or 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. has resulted in a lot more, I think, entrepreneurs. You know, I met a woman a few weeks ago, uh, and maybe you and I have talked about this example as well, uh, whose sole mission is to service her community. She has known since she entered law school that she wants to go out to the suburb and provide a service to the people in her community that isn't being provided now. Yeah. And she's very confident that she can do it off a laptop in a shared working space. And yeah. she doesn't need to make half a million dollars, but she's still going to be in the 1%. Like, she's still going to do very, very fine. Right,
3: right. And she doesn't so, need a Bay Street
0: office to do it in. Right. So so I think it's that that cohort of lawyers and those problems that I want to speak to. Like, how can the CBA become relevant to lawyers working off a laptop in a shared workspace. Like when we talk about, when the CBA advocates on issues around conflicts, is that still relevant to lawyers who are doing that kind of work? When when the CBA doesn't take a position, for example, on the tax deferred accounting proposal in the budget, how is that going to affect access to justice and contingency fees? So I think it's all about that lens. I think it goes back to looking at the problems that the profession is facing through a different lens. Ranjan, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate this.
1: So I just have to say, um, one of the things that struck me most about your conversation with Ranjan is when you asked him how and why he got involved with the Pintia case, why Mm. was he interested in it? And I thought his answer was so lovely that he's interested in cases of public importance because he likes helping groups that haven't intervened before become part of that discussion at the Supreme Court or other high courts. And and I think his, I mean, obviously
2: everybody who wants to be an oral advocate wants to appear at the Supreme Court of Canada, but he was so clear that He wants to be part of those cases that raise issues of national and public importance. Mm -hmm. And I think that his commitment to include more groups such as ourselves, NSRLP as an intervener, speaks volumes to what he sees as the ways in which we figure out some of these really tough questions. I mean, everything is about who gets an opportunity to put their point of view in. And the broader you can throw that and the more points of view you have, certainly the more complicated it becomes. But hopefully the more likely it is to actually reflect and be representative of what ordinary Canadians need
1: and want. Absolutely. And then so him speaking about his first experience uh, at the SEC was so, was so wonderful. And I really, when he talked about how it it feels like being on a field trip, <laughs> like <laughs> you're, you're getting to be there. And even though it's nerve wracking and intimidating, it's still, it's so exciting. And I kind of, I mean, you know, we were just sitting at the back. Oh, there we were and, on a field trip too. But, Dana. Yes, exactly. And it was the best field trip <laughs> I've ever been on. And I know what he means when you're, you know, to be in that room and it just feels yeah. so, so momentous and to be a part of, Um, a conversation like this and knowing that this is having a historic impact. And I thought it was so lovely, the story about his mom so badly wanting to to watch Mm -hmm. his first hearing. And I think that spoke to how important this achievement was to his family and especially having been sponsored immigrants and what that means to them to have him there at the highest court in the land being listened to and taking part in this dialogue and representing his, his family and his culture.
2: Yeah, and he was very clear, I thought, in our conversation about how much that has provided motivation for his wanting to become involved in, in organizations uh, mm-hmm. within the legal profession. I mean, as he pointed out, a lot of these organizations aren't seen as particularly relevant, by younger lawyers, um, probably because, as he said, they're not doing anything particularly relevant, and they don't look very representative. They still tend to look like they represent the legal profession of 20 years ago, and they certainly don't look like they are representative in the way that if you walk into Scarborough Town Centre, you might see a group of people who are representative of the Canadian public. So I think Ranjan sees this as a really important opportunity to start making those organizations more representative, but also just more relevant, so that they can actually be an important force for change and a positive force for change.
1: So it's great that he is now a part of that um, group. Secretary of the OBA, look forward to his term. In other news, well known Access to Justice scholar Jillian Hadfield has joined the growing call for a reevaluation of legal education to address the challenges facing the legal profession. She recently wrote on courts.com that, quote, today's law schools are graduating hordes of would be lawyers who are not prepared to respond to or innovate new solutions for the pressing legal and regulatory needs of citizens and businesses alike. End quote. Hadfield's proposals to change legal education, which include shifting to a skills- and practice-based model, are well worth reading. You can find the link to her piece on our website, along with Daniel Fish's excellent article in Precedent on the same theme. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have self-trained, self-represented litigants sitting in law school classrooms seeing how new lawyers are trained? Five Ontario law schools are participating this year in Self-Represented Litigants Awareness Day, which does just that. Aimed at increasing law student understanding of the human face of the A to J crisis, SRL Awareness Day takes place on October 4th. We'll be posting more about this on social media as the day gets closer, and we're hoping to grow this event even more in 2018. You can participate in the conversation on social media with the hashtags SRL Awareness Day and SRL Awareness. A link to more information about SRL Awareness Day, as well as the previously mentioned articles on legal education, can be found on our website at representingyourselfcanada.com podcast on the page for this episode, Changing Faces in the Justice System. Next week's guest on
2: Jumping Off the Ivory Tower will be Judy Gayton. Judy Gayton is a self-represented litigant from Medicine Hat, Alberta, who has been trying to navigate the courts with a brain injury. And she's going to be talking about what it's like to have that experience. See you next week.